Welcome to Post-Colonial Space. I'm Masood Raja. And today I'll briefly talk about two methods of reading texts that come from the medieval Islamic tradition and about whom uh, Edward Said talks about in his The World, the Text, the Critic. And that is the Zahiriya and the Bataniya mode of reading the texts. Now, Zahiriya scholars or Zahiriya theologians were a group of theologians, a school of thought in the Muslim um, Abbasid Empire, who believed that if you want to interpret the Quran, all you need is the text on the page and you read it within the context of history within which it exists, and maybe a little bit of context of when the text was recorded. But what they didn't want the readers to do was to look at the secret etymologies of the words and look at the deeper meanings of the text. So the idea was, if you know classical Arabic and you read a text, the first instance of meaning is what is there in the sacred text and there is no need to look for hidden meanings. Now, the Bataniya scholars were mostly aligned with what was then called the Talimi group, which eventually becomes the group of Hassan ibn Sabah, the Valley of the Assassins, and eventually the Ismailiya sect of Shiaism. But it also permeates now a lot of Sunni schools of thought, and the idea in the Bataniya mode of reading is that when you look at an Arabic text, you then go and find all the possible connotations that it has, then look at it deeply enough to see what meanings can you construe, and then based on that knowledge, a scholar can then have an opinion about a verse of the Quran or something that's mentioned about any rules or regulations. And both reading practices are still extant in the Islamic world, especially in the scholarship of Islamic jurisprudence. The consequences of, let's say, the Bataniya reading is that sometimes the scholar would go and read a word and then go and find the most conservative meaning that can be associated with it. And since they have detached it from the textual history of the text itself, when the verses were revealed, what was the time frame, then they can articulate the most conservative positions. And one great example of that is when uh, famous Dr. Israr Ahmed reads the verses about hijab, right? And then he goes and reads the most restrictive definition of hijab where he used to advise his followers that the, the women of their household don't just need to perform hijab outside and against men, but also from women that they don't really know very well. Now, that interpretation came from that kind of Bataniya reading of the text itself, and he famously prided himself for knowing Arabic. 
which is kind of sad because saying that I know enough Arabic to read the intention of the Almighty is kind of boastful, prideful, and dangerous. Now, how does this connect to, you know, what we do as literary scholars? So, we can take this knowledge. I mean, a lot of people are these days talking about decolonialism and decolonization, and the way they understand it is by saying we're going to refute any theory or any ideas that come from the West and go and retrieve our own ideas and start writing with those ideas. I think a better way of doing this is that you take these vocabularies that, like Saeed does, right? And juxtapose them with the mainstream Western modes of reading and suggest, hey, here is another way of looking at the text. What you call textual analysis can be driven by these two modes of looking at the text. And then we make those vocabularies prevalent. We make them operative within the Western Academy. So what we have then done is brought an episteme from the Islamic tradition, infused it within our work in English, and then forced the Western theory or Western scholars to build on it, to use it, and to understand it, just as we read our Foucault and Derrida and everyone else. So that's kind of my one example. Said does it tentatively, but you and so many others who are better versed in these terms and these philosophies could do a better job. Another thing that I tried to do, which with the same strategy of bringing vocabularies out of the Islamic history or non-Islamic history, you know, wherever you are from, Africa, Kenya, and using those vocabularies to juxtapose them against the established normative vocabularies of the Western Academy and then insist on using those and use them so frequently and so effectively that they become part of the theoretical tools of any scholar who wants to work on literature. That to me is more of an epistemic intervention into the normative structures of Western reason and Western theory. And quite a few people already do that. I mean, if you read Ngugi Thiango's work, he already does that. Most writers from India and elsewhere already do that by creating what is called an epistemic gap where they don't gloss their words. They work with the sentences in a way that even people who are native English speakers will have to look up stuff. So that's already being done. So my point is that if we go and study these texts, it doesn't matter if you go and study the Islamic text, the Hindu text, the six texts, and look at the practices of reading, how people used to read the sacred text, how was it secularized, and then bring those to bear on Western theory through an act of epistemic intervention then what you are doing it is decolonizing Western theory, not by repudiating it, by inserting in it the vocabularies and the concepts that you draw from your own culture. Another interesting example I have is when a few years ago I had a conversation with one of my colleagues who does rhetorics and rhetorical studies. And he asked me about, is there any precedence of rhetorical studies in the Islamic world? And my point to him was that, look, most of Plato and some of Aristotle was actually translated into Arabic by the Muslims, right? And then it gets translated into the European languages. 
they were the ones the muslims were the ones who preserved it and the first you know arab philosopher to actually take the syllogism from the logic and popularize it in the arab world was al farabi right and then we go into the medieval muslim philosophy especially the mutadilla and others and the concept of balagha right the effectiveness of speech how to convince people how to persuade them to convert to islam or to become better muslims that follows in the discipline of balagha right and that if 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 nothing else that is the rhetorical tradition and then it is our job as scholars and rhetoricians to not just learn you know aristotle and the rhetoricians you know, or burke and others right but to bring these issues these vocabularies their past usage but their contemporary adaptations to our work publish them and that's the only way and the most effective way in which we will dislodge this generalized unreflected overprivileging of western theory so these are some very general examples right i'm not giving like a very streamlined strategy here but the point is that instead of repudiating western theory or so called european theory and then going and inventing the wheel from whatever resources we have available to retrieve our own particular histories a better form of decoloniality would be to take whatever vocabularies you can retrieve to take whatever philosophies you have rearticulate them and then force them upon the western academy bring them to such prominence that the western scholars if they are writing about issues of islam issues of india issues of north africa west africa that without accounting for that knowledge they cannot claim to be effective scholars in that area and this is something that ngugi brings to notice in in his decolonizing the mind but in another one of his essays where he is talking about that you could run into so many western scholars who will tell you oh i specialize on north africa and the next question is when you ask them how many languages of that region you speak there's like no i only read texts in translation and ngugi says that that doesn't apply to africans no african can come to america and say i have read american literature in translations in gikuyu so now take me seriously you know that it doesn't travel both ways and what ungugi was saying is that if native scholars from africa in his case from kenya produced works that are informed by native languages and native cultures right then if it's an equal world and they have the same privilege to share their ideas and everything else then it would become impossible for the western scholars to claim a certain degree of expertise on africa on north africa west africa without knowing the knowledges produced by the scholars there in their own languages right so one way of course is to keep producing these knowledges in our own languages but that those are going to create national intellectual cultures 
but a better and effective tool in my opinion is to produce them in the languages that we use in English departments. We use English but infuse it with the philosophies, epistemologies, narratives and stories that you, me and everyone else can retrieve and build a body of work that is referred to and that people need to master in order to qualify as scholars just as you, me and everyone else has to master certain English literary periods, certain theories, certain theorists to claim that we are specialists in post-colonial studies or Victorian studies and all. And this work is, it cannot just be done in one day or by one person or it can't even be planned. I think it will happen rhizomatically but as long as the scholars in India, scholars in Pakistan and elsewhere keep this in mind that their job probably may not be to repudiate Western theory, but to complicate it with the knowledges that they can retrieve and articulate, then maybe in our own lifetimes we'll see this shift in literary studies where the dominant epistemes of the West, of America, of Britain, France, elsewhere, come to a certain kind of crisis where they realize that they have to account for this knowledge being produced and proffered and offered from the so-called margins. So these are some of my thoughts on this topic. Uh, of course, you know, these are not fully formulated thoughts. These are kind of my tentative thoughts, but I am hoping to do some serious work on this. So I thought I should start the conversation. So please feel free to suggest any new things or anything that you're working on. I would love to hear about that. Anything that you can share or any processes that you use to accomplish such kind of epistemic intervention into the dominant Western theory. I would love to hear that. And, uh, you know, that's all for now. Thank you so much for being the patient supporters of my channel. And now I will see you next time. Please stay safe in this pandemic, take care of each other, and as always, peace and love.